Welcome to More to Come, uh, PW Comic World's bi-weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor uh, for Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I am also co-editor of PW Comics World. I'm the graphic novel review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat, the news blog of comics culture, www.comicsbeat.com. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. I write for Publishers Weekly Comic World, and I'm an assistant editor at The Beat. This week on More to Come, Pocket God and its digital comic. Uh, our own PW uh, Comics World gift guide, DC Comics named one of the hot brands, Peter David's Fan Pro Bill of Rights, uh, news briefs from Kate, new books coming, and our weekly graphic novel giveaway. So let's start with Pocket Gods. Yeah, well, this is a, a topic. Uh, we just ran a, a story on it in Publishers Weekly, and uh, this has been going around for a while, but Ape Entertainment published a Pocket God comic based on the immensely popular iPhone game, and uh, it's really reversed the usual trends. It sold 150,000 copies in digital form and only 1,000 copies in print. And uh, th- this interview uh, that we had with Ape's uh, business manager, um, who is... Uh, David Hedgecock. David Hedgecock, yeah. It really was a very interesting and, and you know touched on a lot of the issues right now with marketing comics and uh, and the direct market. Now I kind of want to read Pocket Gods. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to admit, I haven't read it either, but it was an interesting discussion. And it was an interview uh, conducted by uh, Bridget Alverson. Um, on the one hand, they've sold just an extraordinary number of this digital comic, basically selling it through uh, the Apple system. But they've sold so few print comics... Even though Hitchcock says they've done, uh, and I quote, a, a ton of marketing for the print issue, some of which he basically blamed on really both lack of interest and I think to some extent lack of competency, competency in the direct market. Indeed, he even called the uh, direct market kind of an old boys club uh, that, you know, if you're, uh, that if you're not a member, you, you don't get invited to the party even if you've got great content. Well, I think it's really, uh, the story of Pocket God comic really just plays up that the direct sales market is a really tough market to crack. And if you're not already on the list of things that peop- that retailers think they want to sell. And I remember Eric Reynolds telling me a long time ago when the Ghost World movie came out, and this is when the graphic novel market was just emerging into bookstores. And I remember him telling me how the Ghost World graphic novel had sold well, I might be making up this number, but let's just say it was something like five to one outside of comic shops. And he was saying to me, you know, how can you have these stores that this is what they do and this is their their model and this is their product line that they're so knowledgeable about and here's a movie tie-in and they're not even selling it, you know? And I mean, now, of course, they some of them have wised up and I know so Ghost man. World does sell, um, you know, it's a perennial, it's a classic. Um, but, I mean, you really do have these... These products, you know, getting a new line of products launched in comic shops is virtually impossible. And the Pocket God tie into a, a um, video game, an iOS, you know, phone video game, is a perfect example of that. Well, and not only that, I mean, comic shops don't have a lot of money to throw around. That's so absolutely true. So if they haven't played the game and they don't realize the size of the market out there, it just won't occur to them to buy it. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, at the well, same time... I think part of, part of what Hitchcock is saying is it's their business to know what's selling. Right. And, and, and it's certainly something that but would it seem to be But their it didn't really sell until you, you looked at the digital number. Well, I think that's part of what he's talking about as well. I mean, he, I think what he's saying is that the digital platform is just an enormous... It's not just a, a platform for, for buying and selling games. It's a sense... 
to, for you as a retailer to know what your market might be interested in. Right, right. But uh, I, I think there's so many different variables here. Um, but I'm sorry, Kate. What I was going to say that, that the people who are buying pocket gods on the iPhone or iPod or whatever may not be the people who are going into comic stores. It may just be a different market. Absolutely. And maybe that's okay. Well, absolutely. Well, Hedgecock actually acknowledges that. And, and, and I... It, Responding to a question that you know they did the direct market about the direct market not traditionally being that big a kids marketplace, but really not being a very good kids marketplace at all. Uh, contrary to actually what most mainstream people think about comics. That said, um, uh, the the pocket guys developers continue to plan to do print issues to to target the direct market. Ultimately, I guess most people think that if you have a comic, you really need to be able to sell. But I think a lot of this goes back to the history of the direct market and what its focus has traditionally been on, hobbies and the superhero genre. And as much as the market does seem to be changing, and as we all know that there are new kinds of comic stores uh, and that the stereotype, at least in our minds, is breaking down, it does seem to still exist as a barrier to but I, I Well, mean, but I mean, I, it doesn't fit neatly into either the superhero genre mold or into the indie comic But I mold. think what's really more important about this story is that it really <laughs> does show that a new distribution model is emerging oh, yeah. for new products. Right. And I mean, if there's a new product line that has come out in the last four years since the dawn of the iPhone, it is the iPhone game. You know, yeah. Angry Birds are absolutely one of the hottest, absolutely. hottest brands going. I mean, they're universal. I mean, they, they've, you know, entered our consciousness. Um, and everybody's always saying, when will there be an Angry Birds for comics on a, a mobile platform? And you know what? Maybe, I, I've said this too, maybe Angry Birds is the Angry Birds of comics. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the creators of the game is a, is a failed web cartoonist. Um, a lot of these games are designed by people who have a background in web comics. This is a kind of a different generation of creators as well. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, uh, one of the interesting things in the article is that uh, Bridget asked David, like, why was this so successful online? And his answer is very cagey. He says, uh, you know, it's something so simple, but I'd rather not give it away. Um, but I, I think what he kind of alludes to is that if you buy the Pocket God app, which has sold millions of copies, there is a link to the comics where you go to that app. and it It's promotes. very easy. It's a very, it's kind of like not <laughs> rocket science. And, I mean, it's funny. He's, he's kind of very bitter about not getting into the comic shops, but the fact remains, he's sold a lot of comics. Right. I mean... That's a wonderful thing. If maybe comics that don't fit the niche of the direct market very well find their market online, maybe that's a good thing. Now, and, and like I said, maybe we really need to say this isn't a product that's, like Kate, you were saying earlier, maybe this isn't a product that's meant for direct sales market. Maybe this is meant for uh, online. This is meant for the tablet or the phone, the mobile device market, you know? And I mean, I think this is where we need to really, like... I think a lot of people need to break through. I mean, a perfect example of what you were talking about, Calvin, where direct sales markets. I mean, I don't want to go too far back into the past, but, you know, when mm -hmm. the Simpsons comics line came out from mm -hmm. long ago. I mean, this is the Simpsons. Sure. I mean, this is during its heyday. This is the hottest freaking brand there is that's selling tons of lunch boxes and underwear and everything everywhere. And yet the sales of the comics into the comic shops were minimal. You know, the books have been in the bookstores. They're perennial bestsellers. Sure. But they still sell only a few thousand copies in comic shops. And and so, I mean, you know, it, it, it isn't just... And there's a product that's meant to be on paper. So I think we really all need to free our mind and our sales will follow. Uh, I think if we're a market, in a market that's perennially, perennially challenged, if they can't sell 
enormously popular comics that are selling you know, quite well in other formats. I mean, it's a comics specialty market. If you go to a mystery bookstore, you know, they sell all kinds of mystery books and they promote all kinds of mystery books. Why is it in the comics market that, you know, the, the, our comic specialty shops will only sell certain kinds of comics? But, but, but Calvin, they sell them, but, but they don't sell. But Calvin, they sold a thousand copies. <laughs> I mean, like, so they put them <laughs> there and no one wanted them. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I, uh, not uh, everything is, is popular everywhere. Perhaps, perhaps that's the case, and I understand it, but uh, I think there's a lesson to be learned here um, the question from is, the retailers. What is it? Um, Look, you need to sell pocket guys. And I'll tell you one <laughs> you thing. You might make some yeah, money. But, but, uh, but, well, I, I mean, it, I mean, I I mean I part of what Hitchcock is saying is that you couldn't find the comics yes, in the stores. Yes, that's true, too. That's but, I mean, I'm still just saying, it's like, I mean, if you did put out an Angry Birds comic, you know, they have Angry Birds books, they have Angry Birds sure. comics. I mean, do you really yeah. think that's going to sell as well as the Angry Birds game? Or as well, well no. as that Angry Birds comic that would be linked through the game? Yes, no. exactly. I, you know, and I wouldn't expect it to, but, you know, I'd expect more than a thousand times. Well, yes. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of branding and marketing, um, DC Comics, uh, the new 52, the story of the year in the comic book world, was named one of the hot brands by Ad Age, one of the top uh, magazines about advertising, and just was, you know, kind of saluting Diane Nelson and the crew for uh, taking the characters and making them hotter than a firecracker. Um, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this article is what some of the other brands that were uh, hot was uh, My Little Pony, for instance. Yes. Um, Calvin was very surprised by that, but it's been made into a really, well, truly wonderful well, cartoon. Well, we know that. Calvin had yeah. no idea yeah, what Calvin My had, Little I Pony mean, Kate was. and I were like, yes, of course. <laughs> right. I mean, Uniqlo was a hot brand. Um, you know, uh, Pentel Pens, uh, Sharpies. Yeah. I know what Uniqlo uh, is. And also Poise uh, adult diapers are very hot <laughs> oh, right awesome. now because of our aging population and a growing problem with incontinence. It's nice to know that DC has entered this pantheon of brands here. Yes. So um, I just to give it some context there. Well, Look, it, this is very interesting. Obviously, in light of the new 52, uh, DC is getting all kinds of attention uh, out of the comics ghetto to a certain extent. Um, you know, that said, I mean, once you get beyond, I mean, it really, for most mainstream readers, consumers, it's still kind of DC and Marvel is it. Well, yeah, but we're talking about DC. So DC yeah. and Marvel being it is not. Yeah, I know that's. I understand that, but I, 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 it, I find it sort of vaguely disturbing that DC Comics and Marvel, as much as I love them both, really are still the the, the only brands that most normal well, people well, you know, know most, anything about. Well, but most normal people who buy their graphic novels occasionally in like Barnes and Noble or something will know a graphic novel by title, and it may be out from Oni Press. Also, Scott Pilgrim. It may be out from from Vertigo. You know, also, Walking Dead. Hello, it, it, highest it rated cable it's not show. That people of all aren't buying. It's just adults. that they're not like super into the brand. Which no, and frankly, you're absolutely right. Frankly, in uh, in comics, people generally are familiar with brands, but most in, in mainstream publishing, actually, almost no one knows the publisher of a prose book. You know, a handful of people may follow books from. Canal. So, is this really a problem? Uh, no, it's not a problem. Well, it is a problem. I mean, most other, most actually, most other fields do point to book publishing as a problem category because most people are so, because most publishers do so little branding. Uh, comics actually are generally actually a little different from main, from from prose book publishers because there is some brand awareness out there in the comics world um, among comics fans. Uh, in the in the prose world, there's almost no brand awareness. 
Well, so, I would say, but I, I, I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, I do think there are certain publishers like, you know, Penguin or, you know, our Penguin is one of the few. You know, or Abrams, yeah. or I mean, there's Harlequin. Yeah. Harlequin. Harlequin is a hell of a brand. Most people do know Penguin yeah. because, of the, because of the Penguin the, classics. The classics. And, yeah, sure. well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Harlequin or Tor. I mean, there are genre books that have, like, a certain branding. But anyway, we're talking about comics here. Yeah, let's talk about the DC brand. And I think, what's, but I think <laughs> what's incredible about this is that the DC brand is really... I, the big question for 2012 is, did the DC brand really improve all the brand or just the new 52? Because only this week, uh, we there was a, a a exchange online on Twitter where, where see, a bunch of books were launched in October. This is the, the secret, I guess, of mm. the new 52, is that DC has continued to launch new books every month. Well, That's but they're, they're minis, so, you know, I mean, I think... As in but anyway, just to, just to finish up before you, but uh, the, so anyway, the writer of one of them, Shade, a miniseries written by James Robinson, uh, came on board and he said somebody was twittering a, a a response about how much they liked the book and he said, well, good, I hope it sells well enough to reach the twelfth issue. And then over the next day, he was kind of going on a campaign to drum up support <laughs> for it by you know saying this book needs to sell better. And if you look at the sales charts, like if the book is not branded New Fifty Two, it's kind of back where they were. Well, but part of it is that with New 52, you've flooded the market with new product. And usually, you've got your slate of ongoings, and then if someone wants to try out something new, there's a new miniseries or maxi-series. But with New 52, everything is new. So people aren't really looking for novelty at the moment, so they've already got their plate full, and it's just really a bad time for another t title to start. Now, question is, will it be like this in, like, six months? Yeah, well... Because it may be a better market in six months for the, the non-New 52. But, I mean, look at it this way. I mean, if we're only... Like, they've said right along that they're going to assess, reassess the line, and, you know, not all these titles are going to be published a year yeah. from now. So, uh, I mean, but if they're planning to do, like, new titles that aren't, I mean, they need that new 52 brand on the front. <laughs> I mean, if they, are we stuck in the, the, the space dome, and these are the only 52 titles that are going to be able to succeed? Well, either, you know? either, uh, but, uh, either he should, you know, brand himself as, you know, the 53rd. Yeah, because the new 53. I mean, the question to ask or, yourself is if the shade was published with the new 52 on the title, how much would it have sold? It would have sold a lot. It but the thing is that you so know, that's <laughs> branding in a nutshell. Sure, certainly, without right. a doubt. But it's, it's just bad timing. It's bad timing to be putting out maybe, anything maybe, but the ones you've been promoting maybe like crazy. Maybe the new 52 will be sort of like some sort of new Justice League, and you know you can kick people out and put new people mm -hmm. in. You well, know, so maybe we'll drop a few like and then sort of uh, get some new people, initiate some new series into this, you know, glorious, you know, circle of the well, new well, speaking, 52. Well, speaking of, of branding, continuing the talk, there was one brand at DC that would definitely cut a pole to the top, and that's the long-rumored Watchmen 2. And uh, this, oh God. this week, they, they, I mean, the rumors seem to be coming together, all coming uh, out through uh, the Rich Johnson, but this week he came out and said, uh, for sure... And Andy Kubert's going to draw one of these four rumored prequels. So, uh, I mean, you know, this is uh, kind of a necessary... Why don't we clarify Moore what this supposedly... Is black spell that will come down on DC. So, so tell us what this supposed <laughs> well, Watchmen 2 is supposed to be. Well, we don't really know any of the details. It's all just leaked rumors at this point. But supposedly it's going to be four prequels to uh, the Watchmen, where, you know, with the characters, our favorite, be the beloved characters, you know... Uh, comedian and Night Owl and, and Silk Spectre and so on and uh, Darwin Cook is supposedly again reportedly rumor uh, masterminding this event and uh, so far Andy Kubert uh, is according they say they say 
uh, on board, oh, and uh, J. Michael Straczynski supposedly is on board. Um, is Jason anyone Jones. else having Watchmen and, babies flashback uh, and Watchmen know, I'm a little Saturday torn, morning But ultimately, flashback. it's a really bad idea, but who knows? Well, I, it is a terrible idea. But I is it, it would actually but hurt the we all a little? I'm but a little, going to, a so, little but, I have a guilty notion that maybe, just maybe, would be interesting. Well, supposedly, I mean, we don't know, you know, until this comes out. But, uh, like, supposedly Dave <laughs> Sorry, Gibbons Alan. might be involved with it in some way. I, I, but you know what, Law? I, I, this thing's going to make a lot of money. Not yeah, as well, repugnant. Yeah. Bottom as, line. As repugnant as it sounds, it's going to sell. Just like poise. You know, nobody wants to go to the store and buy an adult diaper, there you go. but uh, they do. There you go. So I love just it. like nobody wants to buy Watchmen 2, but they will. I love so, it. So, and then they could turn it into an adult diaper. So Watchmen 2, the adult diapers of the comics industry. Okay. Oh, yeah, there you go. I think that's, I think that says it all about, you know, about that project. <laughs> Meanwhile, speaking of people who love money, Booster Gold is green lighted go. for a uh, about uh, crash commercialism. But go on. <laughs> Booster Gold has been green lighted for a pilot on the Sci Fi Channel from the people who brought you Everwood. Yeah. This should be interesting. Tell our fans something about Booster Gold. Uh, Booster Gold was an '80s DC comic hero, usually played for laughs. Who, while a good guy, was hugely motivated by possible fame and fortune from his superheroics. He was the, the uh, really uh, uh, the, the superhero um, opportunist of all time. That essentially was his superpower. Right. He, he, would he wanted it. to create his yes. own brand. Yes. He, yeah, yes. He, he was. That's really what he does. You're right. That's his shtick. And I mean, usually he's quite bad at it and ends up saving the day instead. But, you know, he tries. He tries. Right. Coming to uh, the sci-fi network near you. Uh, perhaps. Uh, anyway, speaking okay. of branding, uh, well, let's brand PW yes, a little bit. Yes, and it is the time of year when Absolutely. you might be out there buying a gift for one of your loved ones. And You Absolutely. know, Tom Spurgeon suggests that comics make a better gift for people who like comics than for comic people who don't like comics. You want to give them a gift so they read comics, but if they do read comics, we have a gift guide. Absolutely. <laughs> we and sure we, do. And we, we, we like to think there's a comic on there. For, for everyone. For everyone, yeah. And, and in fact, yes. it is. this was a feature in the print magazine uh, back in September, Adventures in Graphic Stories, Comics and Graphic Novels as Gifts 2011. Uh, you can go to the Publishers Weekly website and do a search, and it'll pop right up. And some of the incredible titles on it, Matthew Manning's The, the Batman Files. Oh, my God, what a book. A, that a, is really a kind of an yep. amazing facsimile uh, dossier, like supposedly written or compiled by Bruce Wayne. It has all kinds of facsimile, like news articles, um, notes, photographs, blueprints, bl- blueprints. Everything. Yeah, but it's an incredible, incredible, like one of those compendium books. Yeah. I mean, it is. This is a gift for somebody you really like because it does cost a hundred dollars. A couple more quick titles. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, another one that's on there is uh, Lucille. Uh, by oh, Ludovic yeah. de Boom. It is from Top Shelf. And this is maybe for the more uh, indie comics focused or, you know, someone who likes literary fiction. Um, this is a French graphic novel. In France, it was like a sensation. I mean, a literary sensation mm. where it was being reviewed in, in regular literary journals. But um, it's about two uh, awkward teenagers who uh, have to overcome their personal problems. It's really beautiful. And it's a very good read as well. So. Uh, let's see, very quickly, uh, also on the list, We Three, the Deluxe Edition by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. Really a wonderful book. Big Questions, the mammoth novel, graphic novel by Anders Nielsen from Johnny Quarterly. We could go on and on. The you know, fan- once you've bought a graphic novel, you're going to want to meet the author of that graphic novel. But when you do meet him or her at a convention, how are you going to behave? 
And how would you like them to behave? Well, uh, comics writer Peter David has come up with a fan pro Bill of Rights. And let me tell you, uh, it's not a minute too soon. It's a hilarious document, both uh, satirical and really uh, quite serious, that uh, and puts it in a, 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 a humorously legalistic form. Uh, you know, all the do's and don'ts of going to a, a comics con and uh, for relations between fans and pros. It's it's really funny, it, it, and, it, it, yeah, I, and I, frankly, should be handed out to it, every it every a, It is a great document. It is hilarious. You know, Peter is one of the most prolific and prolix writers ever. I remember when we were both uh, columnists for the Buyer's Guide, and I would struggle every week to write a thousand words, whereas you know Peter would just write like this ginormous thing, and he always said he just sat down and typed it. So um, this is a very lengthy document. I wish it were shorter so that it could actually have an impact. Uh, a little bit more, but I mean, it really does have a lot of things. That, yeah, you know, why are we going so many more cards? There's so why do we go into this, some of the yes. uh, yeah. detailed complaints and, I, and demands on both fans and pros in this Bill of Rights, although perhaps not at the length that Mr. David went. Yeah, it sounds like Let's see if I can find one thing. Uh, well, I mean, for instance, one of them, I mean, there's so many conventions, and, and one thing that I've actually heard people complaining about on the pro side is signing giant piles of books yes, and I have literally seen people walk up to an uh, artist or writer with a short box full of books for them to sign and then they stand there for like the next hour and the people sign things and I mean that is ridiculous and I, I mean one of the things on here is that the books need to be taken out of the plastic you should yes, never yes, expect, yeah. expect someone to take a comic you know a pro you hand them a stack of comics you know him or her you should take them out of the plastic so I mean it really does get into the the macro, and I, but think, then, and I think one of the, I think there are even some you know there's some restrictions put on or some uh, pros uh, too. Pros oh, as well. yeah, exactly. You know, for that, instance, if a fan comes to you and and mentions that you know he's a huge fan of your of of, of your work, you know, just say thank you and don't cringe no matter what you might think of this particular yes, work yourself. That's a great don't one. Don't cringe that's and, and treat the fan like a jerk uh, because he happens to love a particular book that maybe you weren't so crazy about you know <laughs> when you published it. Anyway, it goes on and on like this, and uh, they're both useful and really... And they go into great detail about a number of things that have tried the souls of many a con-goer, such as people who arrive at a convention in a wonderful and extremely large costume, <laughs> but do not modify the amount of space they expect to turn up, and thus clonk people in the head okay, with their wings or other one. adjustments. Fans have a right not to be abused, scolded, scouted, or otherwise upbraided if they are clearly planning to profiteer off the autograph. You know, example, um, multiple copies of the same book. If they resell the books, it, that will just enable them to make more money to buy more copies of the books by the pro that signed them in the first place. It's capitalism's circle of yeah. life. Well, it's, it's true. Some, <laughs> some comic creators, like, if you don't want them to dedicate it to a specific person, even if you just don't want your name on it, for whatever reason... They will frequently get a little snippy going, oh, are you going to sell it on eBay? Well, you know, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. So what? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there needs to be some, some middle ground there. Uh, here's another one that's really good. Uh, Peter also goes in on uh, panels and questions. Uh, good rule of thumb. If a question sounds like something that would be asked by the main fan geek from Galaxy Quest, avoid asking. Um, you know, I, like I said, Comic-Cons are absolutely becoming a fabric of a wider and wider amount of the population because there's more and more of them, and more people are coming out as geeks and nerds. So, I mean, I think... There is a real solid, even though it's humorously treated, I think there's a pretty solid uh, base of uh, Here's my behavior. Favorite. Authors, 
are not your bitches. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, well done, uh, Peter David. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Well done. And now, here's Kate with the briefs. News briefs. So, top of the news is that there is a new record-setting comic sale. After Nicolas Cage's famous Action Comics number one, which was stolen from him in the mid-90s and returned recently, has just sold at auction for a record-setting $2.16 million, making it the most expensive comic ever sold. Speculation runs rampant as to who the actual buyer is, but someone out there has a very, very expensive Superman. And, you know, I, I just want to say that a buyer is known, and considering the fact that this comic was stolen from Nicolas Cage ten years ago, I can see why the person who bought it does not want his or her identity known. All right, the old 52. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Nope. Speaking of more, things that are briefs. wildly popular, Naruto has gotten a spin-off anime for its spin-off humor comic, Rock Lee No Saishun Full Power Ninden. So now, even the little funny version of Naruto is going to have its own full anime, yes. And it will probably sell many, many copies as well. And this is really um, not so much a, a news brief as a shout-out. Uh, Cheryl Lynn Eaton, who uh, was, a, was a, a comics writer, a webcomic creator, if I'm not mistaken, um, and also a former intern uh, here at PW Comics World, actually when we were PW Comics Week. Um, she's a, well, we just think she's an all-around talented person. There's an, an interview and article about her in on the KSBW.com website. Um, entitled Black Women Take on the Comic Book Industry. And it's just a look at, uh, at Cheryl Lynn Eaton, at her background and her interest in comics and comics creating, uh, at the Jackie Orm Society, uh, which is a, a website and group that, that Cheryl Lynn um, uh, created, dedicated to Jackie Orms, the African-American uh, female comic strip creator. So this is really just a shout-out to her, a talented individual that we were able to work with. And... And, yes, uh, Cheryl Lynn, you are awesome. We like Onward you. she goes yes. with her endeavors. So we're always here to back her up. And, um, and meanwhile, speaking of websites with a good cause, Viz Media is releasing Art for Hope, a digital art book anthology uh, benefiting Architecture for Humanity's rebuilding efforts in Japan on December 1st. That is to say today. And it will be available on various Apple devices through the Viz Manga app until May 31st, containing contributions from 40 artists around the world, including Chew co-creator Rob Gilroy, Longtail Kitty creator Lark Pien, and many more. So now with some new books, um, uh, let's see, what do I have here? I actually have a book. Uh, this is DC has just put out a collection of Chase by uh, Dan Kirst Johnson, J.H. Williams, and Mick Gray. The 90s nostalgia. This is one of those kind of really cool books that came out um, in the 90s. Uh, with Agent Cameron Chase, she was a uh, a uh, you know spy type going around. Uh, it has awesome, awesome art by J. H. Williams, and you know he before he got really, really arty. So it's kind of just good read. Um, anyway, it's nice that they collected this again. And now that his star is rising with Batwoman, no yes. wonder. Yes, well, of course. And uh, another book that's out, my favorite. I I always plug the same people, but I love them so much. Michael Copperman <laughs> has a new issue of Tales designed to frizzle out, and this is just one of the funniest things. Uh, I'm just looking. Oh man, this is so funny. I wish you could be looking at. Yes. Anyway, okay. it's good yes, and you can if you buy it. I'm laughing just watching Heidi <laughs> flap the pages. All right, now. And okay, it's priced quite reasonable. We're going to go from, from funny to, uh, and nostalgic to 
big. Oh, shit. Big. And I mean really big. I mean supersized. Okay, then we, we've talked a little bit about the, the New 52. We're going to talk a little bit more. DC Comics is releasing DC Comics The New 52 Omnibus Edition, a mammoth um, hardcover collection of all the number one issues in the New 52 relaunch. Talk about branding. Here's a brand. It weighs here's about a as much as like four bricks. It weighs more than my laptop. It's a hardcover. It's got a, it's in full color. Every number one issue. Um, Don't drop it on your foot. Cliche, I know, but let me tell you, words to the wise. It's coated paper. It's very heavy. Yes, and it's $150, by the way. And it'll be in uh, comic stores on uh, December 7th and in general bookstores a week later um, on the 13th. So in case you missed all the new 52 excitement, now you can get it all in one place. All in one heavy place. (laughs) Massive. Uh, You'll need a wheelbarrow to carry it home from the stores. All right, and my other book is this is gonna this is really fabulous. Obviously, although not uh, as physically huge. Yes, it's not. Yes, this is a much smaller, uh, more focused uh, um, uh, comics work. Um, Obviously, all uh, we've all remarked on the passing of of Steve Jobs, the uh, the late CEO of Apple. Um, But Wiley, John Wiley and Sons, is actually going to publish in January the Zen of Steve Jobs. A graphic narrative uh, written by Caleb Melby uh, and illustrated by the design and concept firm Jazz 3. And it is a graphic, essentially graphic biography of Steve Jobs, but it really focuses on a, on a, on a very specific period in Jobs' life. The time where he basically started working with a Zen Buddhist priest while in California. And essentially from the period that he spent working with this guy, and it became very close, um, Really, many people, and including this book, they really draw a direct line between um, his study of Zen and the design element and the design philosophy that he brought to Apple project projects. The comic is really incredibly well done. Um, uh, uh, Melby uh, apparently put an enormous amount of research into this period in his life, and there is some great dialogue and really hilarious exchanges, but uh, really well illustrated. Um, it, it really follows uh, Jobs' interest in the Japanese design concept of Ma. And, and um, yeah, I'll leave it it's at that. It's really nice. And you it's know, called like, the Zen of Steve Zen Jobs. Zen of Jobs is going to be, it's about 80 pages. It's, it's $19, and it will also be released uh, as an e-book. Yeah, so when's when, it coming out? Uh, it's, it's the official pub date is January, but the book will be in the stores uh, by mid-December. Great. Nice. So, uh, and now, finally, uh, we have this week's giveaway book. Um, as you know, every week we give away a graphic novel, and uh, this week's giveaway is uh, The Adventures of Hergé by, uh, well, I'm going to get their first names and mispronounce them, so ap- apologies to any French listeners, um, José Luis Bouquet and Jean-Luc Fromental, uh, illustrated by Stanislas Barthélemy, and translated by Helgi Dasher, um, published by Drawing Farley. Um, this is a graphic biography of Hergé, Georges Remy, the creator of Tintin, uh, in his own clear line style. Um, it tells all about his marriages and his life and the creation of Tintin. And with the Tintin movie coming out in a few weeks, this is very timely. Now, if you'd like to get your own copy of this graphic novel, what you need to do is email your name and your address to pwcwgiveaway at gmail.com. Uh, make sure you put your address in there. One winner will be selected at random. Um, 
Boy, we're prohibited. What was that address again? PWCWgiveaway at gmail.com. And before we uh, sign off for, the, for this particular week, I'd like to just give a shout out to our sister podcast, Beyond the Book. And it's a podcast uh, organized by uh, uh, our uh, PW Reviews editor, excuse me, our PW Features editor, Andrew Albanese, and the um, and our PW um, Genre Review editor, um, Rose, Rose Fox. Fox, and also by um, Christopher Keneally of the Copyright Clearance Center. And uh, they do a, a wonderful a weekly podcast that looks uh, at all the issues PW covers every week. So we want to give a shout out to them. Because the podcast empire at Publishers Weekly is growing, and we're just one element of that. And well, it's, we're basically they're only two so far, <laughs> but they're really more. Well, the empire has doubled. So there you go. So, anyway, well, you know what? There's more to come. Oh, more yes. To come. More to come.